Welcome to the First Right Podcast, a weekly conservative news show brought to you by Restoration Pack. I'm Doug Truax, founder and president of Restoration Pack. Today, we're excited to have a first-time guest who is one of America's foremost conservative thinkers. Thomas Klingenstein is chairman of the board of the Claremont Institute. He's a writer, a public speaker, and playwright. He's the architect of the idea that America is in the midst of a cold civil war and conservatives better understand the terrain they're standing on. Well, welcome to the show, Thomas. So great to have you on. Well, it's very nice to be here, Doug. So I want to dive right into this concept that I mentioned a second ago about uh, you're so articulate on this, this cold civil war uh, that you believe we're in that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Republicans may or may not realize it. Um, but you do such a great job in your videos and your speech. So just share with our audience uh, that concept and, uh, and, and where you think we are with it today. I think that there is, uh, we recognize that there's a divide, Republicans as well as anybody else. And I think most people would think about it or would assess it as a serious divide. But I think it's more fundamental than just a divide or a greater than normal divide. I think it's actually uh, a war. <clears throat> and what makes it a war is difference, differences in ends. We have two societies uh, which have different understandings of justice and so have different ends. You know, maybe the most simple way I could illustrate this uh, is to say, I'm in New York. If we're in New York together, you want to go to Maine, I want to go to Florida. There's no basis of negotiation. Those are two different ends. If we both want to go to Florida, well, we could agree on means, when to leave and how fast and what the route is, etc. Or to give now an historical example, uh, before the Civil War, the South had decided that slavery was a good thing, that all men were equal but black men. And like all um, good things, they wanted slavery to expand. And the North, of course, wanted it to contract. So you can't expand and contract at the same time. Those are differences in ends, which is why in the Civil War we had a choice. We could fight or we could part ways. There were no other choices. So this brings us to the present. What is the end of our enemy? And I might stop a second uh, to point out that our enemy doesn't have a name or an agreed-upon name. And it's very, very difficult to fight an enemy uh, that doesn't have a name. Um, sometimes people speak of identitarians, as in uh, identity politics or multiculturalism or you know, anti-racism. But we don't have agreement, and we need to have agreement. My name, which I wish everyone would adopt, um, but I'm not sure they will, is woke communism. Now, what is the goal of woke communism? It is what I would call outcome parity. That is, all identity groups equally represented in all aspects of American society. For example... Blacks represent about 13% of, of America. Therefore, under the WOCOM thinking, they should have 13% of the prisoners, 
and senators and chief executive officers and high test scores and home loans and everything else you can think of. And of course, this is not blacks, but women and other um, identity groups. Now, the problem with this, the fundamental problem, is that this understanding of justice, outcome parity, cannot exist with American justice. Because American justice allows individuals to pursue their own understanding of happiness. And that will inevitably lead to outcome differences between men and women, between Asians and blacks and whites, because subcultures are different. They may have different talents, they have different cultures and preferences, and so forth. So those two things, outcome parity, social justice, we call it, and American justice just don't fit because the only way to move from outcome inequality, American justice, to outcome equality is by force. Um, just one example of what it means uh, to achieve outcome equality is defunding the police. Now, that sort of was a crazy idea that seemed to come out of the blue, but it didn't. Because it's part of an effort to bring down the percentage of blacks in prison, decriminalizing certain laws, failing to enforce others, early release of prisoners. Those, again, are not arbitrary. They are efforts which we could have predicted had we been focused on ends, they are policies designed in this case to achieve outcome parity, equal representation of blacks in prison. And one could point to examples, including taking down statues, uh, rewriting history and all the rest of it, that are all pointed in the direction of outcome quality. So your choice here uh, is tyranny, Again, because that's the only way you can go from outcome equality or inequality to equality, a tyranny or a free society. And to end where I started, I don't think Republicans understand this. They don't understand the severity of the problem, and therefore they cannot act accordingly. Yeah, and I think that's a huge point is just if you if you don't even know you've got a problem, then that's a problem. And we're going to get back to that in a second. I just wanted to ask you, too, you talk a lot about systemic racism. And this is the way this is being, I mean, you're talking about the inequality and everything. This is the way this is being foisted upon us. So how do you, how do you tell, what do you tell Republicans, conservatives, to, how, did, how do they deal with the systemic racism accusations that get thrown around uh, everywhere now in order to push this woke communist agenda forward? Well, let me just back up and explain the importance of systemic racism. If the woke comms can convince us that we are systemically racist, then we will agree to change the system. That's why convincing us that we're systemically racist is so important, as is, by the way, convincing us uh, that we're about to be run over 
by white supremacists. Now, what should the Republicans do? Well, the most important thing they can do is just speak out and rebut without qualifications that we're not systemically racist, that the police are not racist, that America was not built on racism and the desire to perpetuate slavery as the 1619 account has it. So a lot of it is speaking up because it is speaking up. Our national leader speaking up allows other people to speak up. One of the important jobs of an elected official, particularly high-level officials, is to voice the concerns of their constituents, to give their constituents voice, to say what they believe but are intimidated from saying. And of course, the problem here is most Republicans, except Trump, and that's a big exception, um, are reluctant to rebut the charges of racism because, of course, they will be called racist. And um, that's obviously debilitating. The one, there are many good things about Trump. One of them was he didn't care whether you called him a racist. He wasn't, by the way, I don't think. But he didn't care, and he didn't care what the media said. And there's almost no one else uh, in the political landscape who doesn't care. They may recognize that the media is corrupt. Still, they care. And that was one of the great virtues of Trump. He didn't care in the least. He didn't negotiate with the media. He didn't, uh, you know, change what he said because of the media. He was just unequivocal, and he was unequivocal in many things. And that's a great virtue in war. He didn't apologize for past racism. Um, he didn't apologize for America generally. And in this moment, when America is being attacked. When you're in a war, you don't apologize. That's right. And I think that amongst the many virtues of his, I think the top one that got him to the place where he is today with conservatives is this concept of, in this war, the person at the top better know it's a war and better not care about any other outcome other than victory, because if you don't, you're going to lose. And I think people saw that in him, and I think that that's a, that's a really great thing for us to always remember, especially us conservatives, as we go forward. And I want to talk more about the, uh, the Republican base and, and where they are, where they aren't. Um, I did, you did mention one thing, though, real quick, and that was this tearing down of statues and critical race theory and all these things that really, I can remember a decade ago, this stuff didn't exist. And, you know, here we are. It just kind of you know, in the in the grand sweep of history, this came on really fast. And so I, I'm in no way giving anybody an out. We got to realize this is a battle, a war that we're in, and we got to fight it, and we got to speak up like what you just said. There's an element, though, it's just everybody's still taking it in. So how did this happen so quickly, in your opinion? Where did this all come from, these woke communists and their tactics, uh, and, and how did it get to where we are today? 
Well, it, it, it originated, as most noxious ideas do, in the academy, and it's been growing for a long time. What allowed it, I think, to escape uh, ivory-covered walls was George Floyd and the riots, right? As, uh, as is frequently said, um, you know, you can't let a crisis go to waste. And so this was a tremendous opportunity to promote the WOCOM agenda. But by the way, it also, and this is very important, it revealed the WOCOM agenda in a way that at least the public has not seen. So uh, BLM, for example, had in its mission, before it was airbrushed away, that it wanted to destruct, to destroy the American family. Well, most Americans hadn't heard of that. And that, by the way, is an element of achieving outcome equality. Defunding the police, taking down statues. Taking down statues is part of an effort to reformulate, basically destroy our history and make it conform with where the woke comms want to go. So I would say the answer to your question is it was grounded in the academy, but allowed to escape in a big way by George Floyd and the subsequent riots. Yeah, and there's an argument, too, about the woke corporations getting on board. Well, corporations getting on board with the woke concept after the financial crash, and then they've just been growing that uh, attitude going forward because it lets them distract from any failures or lets the big tech guys keep censoring and things like that. And so it's, it's yeah, it's spreading. It's going everywhere. People are taking advantage of it as best they can, and I think it does go back to what you're saying, too, if conservatives, if Republicans are not speaking out against it, then it just keeps advancing, you know, and, and again, we're back to the the war. You know, if, if the other side has declared war on you and you're not even, you know, acknowledging that, then they will just keep advancing into your position until you do finally say think, that's as far as I, you can come and no further. And I think, Doug, that you implied earlier, the greatest virtue of Trump was that he let us know we're in a war. And as I heard you say quite correctly, you can't win a war if you don't know you're in one. Now, Trump may not have been able to explain it as well as he might, but he was he recognized uh, that we're in a war. He understands that in a war, you got to win that compromise reaching across the aisle is usually a fool's game. You can reach across the aisle when you win, but Trump understood the moral imperative to win. So that, you know, people say about Trump that he was very divisive. That's not true. What Trump was, he he, uh, exposed the divide. We said he was divisive, or our press said he was divisive. But I think that's not the way to look at it. That's right. That's right. Yeah. He exposed a lot. And that is the most important thing I think he exposed. And if, yeah, if you don't know you're in a war, you're going to lose. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Uh, so, so back to Republicans fighting, um, you know, I, I, I get the sense at times conservatives will, you know, kind of flare up and fight this battle over here or, you know, 
do a good job at this or but there I, I there's this growing sense that there's a lot of them missing the bigger picture of this so you know speak to that for a minute I mean what's the time frame on this if if we are to get to a place where enough of the people on our side realize wow this is more serious than we thought how long is this going to take and where are we currently you know I even think about the Congress we've got 211 Republicans in the House and 50 senators you know, what percentage of them actually get this concept? You know, that's kind of a scary thought. I mean, those are the types of things I'm, I'm looking for you to, to talk to in, in your opinion on that. Yeah, and <laughs> you may be looking, but I'm not sure how compelling <laughs> right. an answer I have. Um, but it's the number one thing I'm trying to do. Everything I'm trying to do is trying to explain to the Republican Party that we are in a war and here's how you ought to think about it. If you if you can't think about it right, as you say, if you don't recognize you're in a war, that's that's the end of the game. But even beyond that, you have to understand your enemy, what it's trying to do and how it is going about what it's trying to do. Uh, I think Congress, particularly people who are running for Congress, many of them are serious Trumpsters. I talked to a lot of congressmen. Um, in fact, uh, I get so many calls that I've stopped uh, talking to them. But I talked to them enough to know that there are a lot or many who really understand the severity of the problem. They not, may not be able to articulate it in quite the way I do, the way I think they ought to. But like Trump, they appreciate the danger we're in. Uh, I don't see many senators um, who do. And I would also add, and, and in fact, you, you know, within the conservative movement, perhaps the most fundamental divide is between those who think it's a war and those who don't. As you know, I'm the chair of the board of the Claremont Institute, a conservative California think tank, and we are strongly on the side. In fact, we're leading the effort to convince people that this is a war, right? And they ought to think about it in a particular way. But there is a large uh, portion of the conservative movement who don't agree. And by and large, those were the people that became never Trumpers. And I understand that because Trump is a wartime president. He might not of, he might not have been, I think, it's quite likely he wouldn't have been an effective president in peacetime. You know, the analogy I draw sometimes is General Grant, um, you know, a drunkard, loose morals. But in wartime, he was the only one that was willing to fight. Fighting was absolutely essential. So he was a great wartime general. Whether he would have been a great peacetime general is another question. And Trump, too. One has to recognize that despite the limitations of Trump, his personality and his character, he's a wartime president and he's got the grit and he's got the courage uh, that's required in a war. Right. Absolutely. And uh, the virtue of exposing that is is highest. I think you've said that uh, you're. You're looking to support him uh, until you can find somebody with his virtues and less of his vices. Uh, but to your point, in a wartime situation, uh, 
a lot of times those vices come along with the right people. And it's just the way it's going to be if you're going to win. You know, I think of Patton and all that, you know, uh, I, I went to West Point, so I had all that military history stuff. And uh, yeah, that is often the case. And those guys, when the war is over, uh, they don't, uh, they're not appreciated as much, you know, it's the, it's the Winston Churchill thing as well. So yeah, we'll see what happens. And I think it just, we got to, you know, the work you're doing to call attention to this is, is wonderful. And, and, you know, you get the the feeling when you watch your videos and hear your speech, you remain hopeful. You talk about Lincoln's quote, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the defiance and, uh, and fighting it out, um, but, you know, the erosion of a culture or a country or a civilization is a, is a painful thing, uh, a painful thing to watch, you know, especially for our country as we're going through this. So talk a little bit about why you, you're still so hopeful uh, about our future, uh, as am I. And so I think our audience always wants to hear, you know, we all know the bad stuff a lot of times, but how, how, how do we stay hopeful in the face of this? And, um, and what's the best approach going forward here? First, I would say if I were betting on this, uh, I don't think I would bet on the side of we can defeat this. But that doesn't mean I don't have hope. Uh, I have a significant amount of hope. Part of it is, and this may not be so reassuring to your audience, but it's still, I think, worth saying, is there is always hope who would have guessed that we would have got a donald trump a man who as i've said is particularly suited to the moment and that was an example again of uh you know what can happen i think that you know the american people are beginning to push back against crt against changing our history and names and all the other things and you'll notice that even the Democrats understand that the woke comms got ahead of themselves. And there's certain things that they were promoting, destruction of family, for example, or uh, revisionist history, that was a step too far for Americans. And Americans at some point are willing uh, to step up and push back. So it's Trump's base, I think, and Trump's base enthusiasm, which is partly what gives me hope. I mean, if you watch some of uh, Trump's rallies, you know, he's not a, not a professor. Um, sometimes they make you cringe, but yet they give you hope. And, um, you know, the people there are profoundly pro-American. And that's another thing about Trump. There was never any doubt. He never apologized for America's past. No guilt, right? America was unequivocally good. And in fact, I hope this doesn't digress too much, but if you want to think about, in the most simple terms, the debate in this country at the moment, it is between those who think America is good and want to preserve it and those who think it's bad and want to destroy it. And Trump unequivocally thought it was good. If you listen to his press conference, his, his uh, COVID pr uh, press conferences, he basically made two points over and over and over because Trump is a good marketer. 
he said the news was fake and America is incredible. It's scientists, it's military, it's people, and of course, Trump himself. Um, but he expressed this unreserved, unmitigated support for America at a time when America's basic goodness was being attacked. So again, it's, I think, the American people, that's my hope, but they need leaders. What they don't have now, with the exception of Trump, is a leader who can help explain what's going on and giving them guidance. You, so that's, it's leadership that we need. Right, right. And I think that that there's lots of reasons to be hopeful. Um, it's still a great country. Uh, I, I think it's still center right. The media's got a hold of a lot of people right now. I like what you've done with the woke communist piece. It feels like to me it's patriotic Americans versus woke communists kind of at the top of the at the apex of this on each side. And then there's a lot that falls down below that. And to your point, you got to stay hopeful. And, you know, you don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, obviously. But you do know the right thing to do is to fight for it. And and that's what you're doing. That's what we're doing. And I think it's what a lot of patriotic Americans are continuing to do because it's worth the fight. And uh, and Thomas, I appreciate everything you're doing. I think you're dead on. And, uh, and we're going to do everything we can to make sure people see it more like you and your group sees it because that's the way forward. And, uh, and thanks for all you're doing and thanks for coming on today. Well, thank you for all you're doing and having me on. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll talk to you soon. Good. Thanks again. All right. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for tuning in and for supporting conservative media. Don't ever forget that by working together and staying diligent, we conservatives can bring our country back to true greatness. Until next week, let's all keep praying that God will continue to bless America. First Right, a new kind of news summary without the liberal slant. Every morning, in your inbox, always free. Subscribe by texting First Right to 30161. That's First Right, all caps, one word, to 30161.